The Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello and welcome back to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Miles Danhausen Jr. And today we're going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects, but usually one of my favorite subjects because they're winning, but uh, talking about Packers and a little local history, a little Gibraltar High School history too. And you wouldn't think those things would be intertwined, but we found out that they are a little bit. So to discuss this with me is Herb Gould, who spent 29 years writing, covering sports for the Chicago Sun-Times, now has a website, tmgcollegesports.com, worth checking out for anybody, especially if you love college football. Herb, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Miles. I forgot how you initially got in touch with me, because we usually don't have a lot of former Chicago Sun-Times sports writers come and, and write for us here at The Pulse. And you reached out probably about a year and a half ago about there possibly being a way you might be able to contribute to the pulse, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, we have a friend in common, uh, Thor, Larry Thorson. Yes, that's Lovely it. gallery in Ellison Bay. And mm-hmm. he kind of mentioned to me that he had mentioned to you. <laughs> and one thing led to another. And yeah, we got together and talked a little bit about some things. And then we started inevitably talking about Curly Lambeau in Door County because it's it's one of the little-known treasures uh, of this area. So then we were off and running, as they say. Yeah, and you stopped by here, and you said you've been noodling around and working on doing a book about Curly Lambeau for years, and it just it tweaked this memory of mine that this kind of thing that's been on the back burner for me for years is this story I had heard and been told once about Curly Lambeau helping out as an assistant coach, sort of, a self-made assistant coach at Gibraltar School way back in the 60s or late 50s when he had retired. And I just never had the time to dig into this story. You know, you're doing all the municipal news, playing whack-a-mole every week, getting the paper out. And sometimes I have to admit to myself, I'm never getting to that one. So then I'm like, well, if you're interested in Lambo, do you want to take this on? And luckily, you wanted to hop all over it. So... I only knew this thread a little bit because I wrote about a guy, Pat Spielman, 15 years ago when he passed away. Pat Spielman was a beloved teacher at Gibraltar School who had to coach high school football. And I won't spoil this. I'll let you tell more of it. But when I wrote about him passing, his son, Bob Spielman from Hathead and Fish Creek, had mentioned that one time Curly Lambeau showed up at practice. So this is the story that I always wanted to get more out of and find more about. What did you find? Well, you know, that that's exactly right. You mentioned that, and it was on my to-do list for this biography of Curly that I actually have it a finished version, but I keep wanting to put extra things in it because <laughs> the research is, is just so fascinating. But what I found was that I talked to a, a player or two who had been on the team, and they remembered Curly being there, and... They didn't remember all of it. And then finally, uh, when I talked to Bob Spielman, Patrick's son, he had great memories of it. He also had some great research, some background. He had some playbooks and some diagrams that Curly had brought to his dad to help coach the team. And then it all sort of fit together. You know, it, yeah. was, it really was, was something else that, that Curly... You know, at that point, I mean, I think it was 1959 when when I finally figured out was the actual year. Yeah. 
And Curley, at that point, had completed his official coaching career. He left the Packers after the 1949 season, but then immediately was hired by the Chicago Cardinals, where he worked for two years. And then he worked for the Washington Reds, coached the Washington Redskins for two years. He's head coach in all these positions. Got into a virtual fist fight, if you can call it that. They were old men at that point. <laughs> Curley and the owner of the Redskins, George Preston Marshall, had some disagreements in training camp. So Curley was out, and then he coached the college All-Stars for three years. And then when that ended, you know, he was up here. He had bought a house in Fish Creek in around 1956. But now he's not really doing anything with football and he had helped promote the referendum to build the stadium that ultimately would have his name on it in uh, 56, 57, it was opened. So he's up here, he's got this big house on, on uh, Cottage Row, he has a boat in the Fish Creek Harbor, but you know he's an active guy, uh, he's got a, a very attractive young girlfriend in Sturgeon Bay, mm-hmm. and so he has time on his hands, and he's at this football practice, or game actually, for the Gibraltar Vikings, and, and Bob said that his father often told the story that his dad, Patrick, heard this voice yelling from the grandstands, and it was not a good team by any means. <laughs> they hadn't won a game in three years. They're historically yeah. not a lot of great teams from Gibraltar. <laughs> no, although I heard that there was a pretty good one that you might have played on. <laughs> <laughs> so Curly comes down and says, I think I can help you. And Bob's dad, Patrick, really was by default the football coach. He was, as you mentioned, I mean, a tremendously gifted woodworker and wrote over 80 books on on crafting woodworking but but football wasn't his deal by by his own admission so he welcomed the help and what was it back then it was like he's a young teacher you apply for the job and they'll say you get the job but you also have to coach football like you don't it's not like now where you go you Usually it's the guy who shows the most interest, or you go coach what you want to. It was just like, you're going to have to do this. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. And also, I mean, now I think people would, you know, jump to get the football coaching job, <laughs> whereas back in those days, coaching was just an extra thing. It took up more time. I'm not even sure how much extra money, if any, they got. Yeah. So, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't coveted. And uh, as you said, I mean, it wasn't like there was a great football interest or tradition in this area, but Curley jumped in, so he started coming to practice, and one of his old players, Dick Weisgerber, owned the CNC Supper Club, which people may remember was a famous, famous uh, hotspot in uh, downtown Fish Creek back mm-hmm. in the day. So he was a former player, and they both came over, and they were working with the guys on practice, and uh, the way the story's been handed down by Patrick's son, Bob, they were getting to the point where Curly was telling Patrick, you got to get these kids out of school early. We need to practice. (laughs) And the principal got a a wind of it and really didn't like that idea. And he he told Patrick, you got to get rid of this guy, Curly. (laughs) (laughs) So he was, he left the Packers. He's fired by the Cardinals. He's fired by Washington. And then he gets fired by Gibraltar High School. <laughs> Absolutely. Came right down the right down the pecking order. <laughs> it's uh it's funny though when I remember talking to Bob, he said like his dad had no idea who Curly Lambo was. You mm-hmm. know, when he comes out. He's that he's that much of a football novice. And 
I had always thought, I'm like, did this really happen? It was one of those things that I didn't, I'd heard stuff about, Bob had mentioned stuff. I'm like, how, how do people not know about this? How is this not a bigger deal? And sure enough, when we were in Bob's office and he's showing us the old playbooks, the old scribbles on paper and stuff of like the wing T offense and you go, wow, wow, this is real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, but that I guess that's the thing that really got me interested in, in Curly Lambeau altogether is that everybody knows Lambeau Field and the loyalty and, and fervid spirit of Packer fans is legion. I mean, I grew up in Chicago and as a sports writer, I'm, I'm not really a fan of any team in particular. We always say, well, we're, we root for the story. And especially with the Bears, that's not an easy team to root for. <laughs> but I kind of found that, you know, moving up here, living in, in Sister Bay now, found the loyalty of Packer fans just phenomenal. And I would ask them, what do you know about Curly Lambeau? This is how I got interested in, in writing the biography. And they go, well, he started the team and he won a lot of games. Uh, what else? And I, and then I started looking into it. I don't. I would ask you, what what did you know other than this Fish Creek and Door County connection? Your knowledge of Curly Lambeau? Well, I, growing up, I was a sports nut, so I read Packer history. I would, you know, before we got on started recording, you had mentioned Lee Remmel. I would sit there on Sunday morning, so we didn't have cable or anything in Egg Harbor, and Bill Jarts and Action Two News would have a pregame show. And Lee Remmel would always come on and do some trivia thing. And that was like my favorite part of the show. I loved the historical element of it. So I would read up on Curly and, and his time in Green Bay and Johnny Blood McNally and all those guys and the Acme Packers and, and everything from those early days. But I didn't know much about his personality. I didn't know much about his philandering until I, I heard about Mary Jane Van Sorgel, who just passed away a couple of years ago, but who was the one known as the Golden Girl from Sturgeon Bay, who dated Curly and was dating him when he died. Yeah. I, mean, I didn't know until that, until learning about that story, probably 2010, I never knew Curly Lambeau had a house in Fish Creek and that he died in Sturgeon Bay until that story. Right. They would just give it. And, and you know, it, it's sort of an oddity because in his time, I mean, Curly Lambeau, coached the Packers and, and, and ran the team and was, he was the virtual owner, although he wasn't the owner because it was publicly owned, but to the general football world, he was the Green Bay Packers. Yeah. And, and, you know, and just the same way that George Hallis was the Chicago Bears. Yep. And even more so, there really weren't any other people at that level. It was George Hallis and, and Curly Lambeau. And they were, the, they were the heart and soul, the bedrock of the National Football League in those early hard scrabble years. And then, you know, after World War II, it became such a booming business. There was a rival league, the All-America Football Conference, and they really put a huge financial burden on a small franchise, small-town franchise like Green Bay. So now they're hurting for money. Curley was always kind of a big spender. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he did a lot of things that, you know, cost money, and, and when they were pinching pennies, you know, that was okay when they were winning and things were going well. But it led to his demise, and he was virtually run out of town. Mm -hmm. I mean, so it's sort of odd that a guy who's a beloved founder had such an untimely end. You know, the other thing that, that's interesting is one of the big things that brought him down was a property called Rockwood Lodge, 
which yeah. is now the Bayshore Park, about 15 miles out of Green Bay. You see it on on 57 if you're going up and back that way. And this Rockwood Lodge was something, I think, the Benedictine Order, if I, I may have that name wrong, but it was kind of a retreat house, giant lodge, and Curly came up with this idea for a dedicated practice facility and housing for his players, which was way ahead of its time. Great idea. After World War II, housing was in short supply. But the problem was it was a real money drain, and the Packers couldn't really support that. The other thing was that when they went to practice there, as we all know up in this area, you know, the Niagara Escarpment doesn't allow for a lot of dirt on top of those <laughs> rocks. So when they started practicing, the guys were all coming up with shin splints and, and sore legs. So they really couldn't practice at their practice facility. <laughs> and these things all contributed to the decline and fall of Curly Lambeau in Green Bay. So the, it kind of you know, went from there. He was a fascinating man, though. I mean, an innovator like you wouldn't believe in so many areas. In those final years when he was in Door County, retired to Fish Creek, that house on Cottage Row, it was about that same time as he's up here that Lombardi comes to town, right? And they did not get along, correct? Not really, no. I mean, publicly, they, you know, paid respects to each other, but Lombardi did not. In fact, I've got, this is one of my central themes in the book is just how Lombardi did not want that stadium named Lambeau Field. He really didn't. You know, in fact, there's a, a great story from the Press Gazette where the sports editor wanted Curley and uh, Lombardi to take a picture together. And this was right when there was a big Hall of Fame induct. The Wisconsin Hall of Fame was inducting Curley, and they were going to have a big banquet in Green Bay. And it was Art Daly, the Green Bay Press Gazette sports editor, said, Vince, could you take a picture? Lombardi first said, no, absolutely not, because he didn't want to be involved. And then finally they persuaded him to do it because he was promoting a, a book and whatever. Well, then when Curly died three years later, Daly put the picture of Lambeau and Lombardi on the cover of the Packer yearbook. <laughs> and Lombardi called him up and said, that's the worst yearbook I've ever seen. How could you do that? <laughs> you know, slammed the phone and he wouldn't talk to him for months. I mean, there was, wow. and yet, you know, publicly they would say the right things. But yeah, there was a. Was it a uh, jealousy or a, I, or did, what, did, was Lombardi just kind of asserting himself or did they have any sort of beef? I think that mainly, it, you know, the main thing was that Lombardi, I think David Marinus in, in his wonderful biography of Lombardi mentioned that, you know, this was sort of a rare show of Lombardi's ego. He didn't really want anybody encroaching on him or his team, and maybe he wanted that stadium to have his name on mm -hmm. it. Also, Lombardi was a very devout man. You know, in fact, I in researching, I found a lot of his teammates at Fordham, he was one of the seven blocks at Granite, mm -hmm. and his teammates said they were so shocked when he was a football coach. They thought he was going to be a priest or, <laughs> at, at worst, a lawyer. They never thought he'd stay in football. So Curley, on the other hand, you know, was married three times. He was always running around with attractive women, and this was sort of... You know, this was unseemly to somebody like Vince Lombardi. Now, mm. I, I mean, I'm drawing these conclusions based on other people drawing these conclusions. It was never, like, outwardly said. Right. But, yeah, you know, not wanting people to take away the spotlight from the Lombardi Packers and not really liking the lifestyle, those... 
those were deal breakers for Vince Lombardi. And then Lambeau, on the other hand, like you said, he more or less was the Green Bay Packers. Mm-hmm. Wasn't an owner, but more or less was an owner. And he was the George Hallis of Green Bay. So seeing somebody come in and become just the national figure that Lombardi became, because Lombardi was actually talked about as a vice presidential candidate at one point. So it's like his stardom is kind of hard to grasp. And it's even harder to grasp if you try to, like Green Bay doesn't seem like a big town now, but 1950s and 1960s Green Bay was a small, small town. Absolutely. In fact, you know, the, the, the ironic part about that is that that worked in Curley's favor in the 20s in particular, because Green Bay really didn't accept prohibition. (laughs) It was a great German Catholic population that liked to have their suds, and they were constantly, federal government was, you know, leaning on local officials to enforce prohibition. They wouldn't do it. Well, that was great with the football players because they loved it. They could come to Green Bay and they, (laughs) they could always get a drink. And uh, a lot of them were small-town guys, and when they weren't having a drink, they could be outdoors hunting or fishing. So Green Bay was, I mean, it was almost like the Las Vegas of the NFL in the early days. And you weren't trying to, like, people weren't making the kind of money in sports that they are now, so it was like, hey, it's a job. You know, guys like Bart Starr would be insurance salesmen in the offseason still. So it wasn't what it is today where you just get to go and be a superstar somewhere. No, that's exactly right. In fact, one of the Packers in the late 20s, early 30s, Vern Llewellyn, who is uh, billed as you know the most deserving Packer who isn't in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He, he was a phenomenal punter in those days when punting was really important. They would punt on second down. They would just play field position. But his offseason... Sounds exciting. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. That was why it was not really a high-paying job. His off-season job, he was the Brown County District Attorney. Wow. <laughs> and, and he defeated one of his teammates, Lavi Dilwick, for the job in one of the elections. But yeah, they, and they a lot of the Packers went on to be, you know, police chief, fire chief. They had... All kinds of, of side jobs. And Don Hudson, the famous receiver, was a car dealer in uh, Green Bay, also owned uh, a, the Palladium, uh, a really popular bar and, and bowling alley. Hmm. And then uh, and then he moved down to Racine. He got rid of his Hudson dealership and moved into the Chevy and Cadillac world down in <laughs> Racine, which was another shrewd, another shrewd move by a terrific receiver. Hungry for more great Door County stories? Pick up a copy of the autumn issue of Door County Living Magazine. In those pages, you'll learn more about the time an aging Curly Lambeau turned up on the sidelines of Gibraltar High School football practices. You'll find out why a nondescript post is much more than a light pole in Ephraim. And you'll be inspired by a family that made Sister Bay their home by the flip of a coin. Find these stories and many more on newsstands everywhere in Door County. The Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Medical Center. Are you looking for a job with excellent benefits, culture, and potential for advancement through tuition reimbursement programs? Door County Medical Center is hiring. For more than 75 years, Door County Medical Center has been the leader in health and wellness for Door and Kiwani counties. Their integrated medical center provides a wide range of specialties, including primary care, behavioral health, general surgery, the Women and Children's Center, the Door Orthopedic Center, the Door County Cancer Center, and more. To join the team, apply today at dcmedical.org careers. In researching your Curly Lambo book, you said that it's a hard guy to write about because you don't know what he said is true or false. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, in fact, you mentioned Lee Remmel, and you know, Lee Remmel. I think he used the phrase of a serial liar. <laughs> you know, I mean, you <laughs> never knew what what whatever Curly said. It was pretty fabricated. But I mean, in his defense, in those days, sports writers loved a good story, and they didn't want to let the facts get in the way with it. You know, I've had this kind of a of a chuckle with Cliff Crystal, the Packer historian, and we we talk about how fun it might have been to be a sports writer back then because you know you could tell these wonderful stories and you know nobody really fact checked them yeah so you know that made it tough to write about curly lambo in fact that's one thing that continues to make it difficult as i research the stories you know but at the same time it was just such a phenomenal life i mean he played one year at notre dame in college and it was the first year that newt rockney was the coach and Curly scored the first touchdown of Newt Rockney's career. <laughs> you know, he was he was the fullback and uh, a guy named George Gipp, the Gipper, people probably have heard mm. of him. He was the out, you know, Curly was Mr. Inside and and Gipp and a couple other guys would run outside. So, you know, the first touchdown Newt Rockney and Curly also was the first 1000-yard passer in the NFL. Because nobody passed. I think the year that he threw yeah. for 1,000 a, a yards, the Bears passed for 80. <laughs> well, and the Bears still just passed for about 80 yards a year. <laughs> well, that's right. <laughs> so you're looking to publish this book. Like, Do you have it completed? You said you're still going back and, and adding to it as you learn more. I am because, you know, there are still more questions. You know, for one thing, the research is just fascinating anyway. I'm, I'm an old-time newspaper guy. I, I worked my whole career. I was in sports for about 30 years, but I was a, a new side editor and, you know, spent 40 years in a newsroom. And looking at the old newspapers, I know you share this love because we've talked about that. To look at, you know, the 1925 Green Bay Press Gazette, you know, I start reading all the other pages of it. And the other part is that one thing leads to another, you know, Curly had this whole second life in California, because he would go out there during the 20s, he'd go out there in and to uh, scout players at the, well, the Rose Bowl, but also the East-West Shrine game, which was a huge all-star game. And he didn't, I mean, it's, I've mentioned in the book, it's sort of ironic that everybody celebrates the frozen tundra of Lambeau Field, but Lambeau himself wanted nothing to do with frozen tundra. (laughs) He did not like cold weather. He would go out to California, even when he was running the Packers, he would be out there for months on end. His second and third wives were both from California. And uh, the third wife actually was very wealthy, so he he really fell into you know um, they lived in a, a gorgeous house in Malibu right on the beach, and they had property you know she had property and it kind of got commingled in the divorce. He came out very well in that divorce, <laughs> but he lived in Palm Springs after he was you know in his later years when when he was on his own so to speak and. Um, Yeah, he was just, he's a hard guy to get a handle on because he was such an innovator in some ways. And also, you know, some of the stuff was sort of, it was unseemly. It was, it was, it was a kind of life that made people in Green Bay uncomfortable, Mm. you know, divorcing your high school sweetheart, remarrying a beauty queen that you met on a boat and, you know, and so on. You know, there were a lot of, there were a lot of things that that's what's neat about him. I mean, I think that's what's neat about great people and and, and a a good biography is they can do these fabulous things on the one hand. And then on the other side, you're like, 
what were they thinking? You know? Yeah, you have these, you know, like everybody, flawed individual, mm-hmm. and that's what makes us interesting, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, they're not much of a book if they were just perfect all the time. Curly ultimately wasn't able to help that Gibraltar team very much, was he? <laughs> no, no, they weren't. Actually, they did win. They did break the losing streak in their last game. They played very short season. I think they only played like six, seven games. Yeah. They did win their last game, their homecoming game, but I think Curly was gone by then, and yeah, it was kind of a, it was a very short-lived deal. As you mentioned, you know, he was, just as he was dismissed from the three pro teams, <laughs> dismissed by the high school team. So yeah, it was a brief encounter. Did the couple of players from that team that you talked to, do they remember much specifically about like what he was like at that point? Yeah, actually, Wayne Voigt, who was a linebacker on that team, he said he originally met Curly before the football team. He was working with a man who did TV and radio installs, and he was, you know, this was when he was a high school kid, and they were putting a TV antenna on Curly's house, and it was apparently a really, you know, it was a mansion in in many ways. It ended up burning down, um, Mm -hmm. but... Wayne remembered Curly. He didn't really know who Curly was at that point, but he said the house was, you know, he was like terrified when he had to get up on the on the roof to deal with the antenna. But he also remembered Curly as a guy who coached nuts and bolts. You know, he Curly showed him, you know, how to turn a runner inside. You know, he, uh, Wayne was an outside linebacker, and now you're going to turn this runner inside and you've got more defenders in there. So, yeah, he was a very hands-on coach. And, and then the, the diagrams that Bob had were very intricate. And I think that, you know, Curly was, he was very involved in, in the whole coaching world. Even though, you know, I mean, one year, some of his players, Johnny Blood, for example, mentioned that he wasn't really the most knowledgeable about football because he just spent this one year in college and he kind of was winging it. I mean, he had a very good mind for it. But Johnny Blood and a couple of the more experienced players on the team, and at this point, Curly wasn't a whole lot older than these guys. You know, yeah. very awesome. Well, he's a player owner, basically. Ex- yeah, exactly. He was, you know, winding down. Curly played through the 20s, probably finished up 28, 29. And that was when his team got really good when he stopped yeah, when playing. They, they won three straight championships at that point, right? Yeah, they won three straight. And that was right about when Curly, that was, he didn't play on those teams. But he would have to, you know, these players would explain to him that the blocking has to be different here, you know. And so he really evolved over time. And I think that, you know, that might be one thing that by the time he got to coaching at Gibraltar, he really was a knowledgeable guy, you know, because he he evolved from he ran the Notre what they called the Notre Dame box in the twenties, which was Newt Rockney's invention, where the four guys would line up in the backfield and then they would shift around. And <laughs> Curly made variations on that theme. I I don't know what what they were running in fifty nine though. I might have been a <laughs> it probably would have been a little more modernized by that point. People were running a T formation with a little variation. Yeah. That, that's one of uh, Bob's folders, the wing T offense or something like that, <laughs> right. a label on it. Yeah, you think of Curly coming up, whereas like Vince Lombardi had coached under other coaches. He was on the staff. I think it was, was he offensive coordinator and Tom Landry was defensive coordinator yeah, or something like that. Yeah, on the Giants. And then uh, 
So you're learning from other guys, and, and Lombardi, of course, plays for Fordham. Lambeau just kind of creates a team and runs it himself, so he's just kind of inventing the game as he goes, him and Hallis. So yeah, exactly. Not a lot of opportunity to learn from anyone when you're when you're <laughs> the founder of the, the league. Well, it was also a different era in that college football was way bigger than than the NFL when Curley was doing it. So they really had to promote it, and he was quite good at that. You know, when they would go to New York, he would just charm the New York Times columnist, John Kieran, write these little columns, and Curley would play along, and he when he would go into some of the nightclubs and things in New York, he was considered a huge celebrity. And so, you know, he kind of basked in all that. And he was a great salesman, too. He sold, he sold insurance in the offseason, started out selling clothes, and then he sold insurance. And, and I think he continued to do that for quite a, a while because that was what he did. He was, you know, he was a hustler, I guess, is what the best <laughs> way to put it. <laughs> well, Herb, thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast and talking about this. And thanks for doing the article. The fall issue of Door County Living Magazine is where you're going to find the article about Curly's time at Gibraltar. It's still out on newsstands for a few more weeks. If you're looking for it, it's the one with the Fall Fest Derby on the cover. So it's a great story. Thanks for doing it. Thanks for diving into it. And I'm, I'm glad I stumbled into somebody who can nerd out on Curly Lambo and old football stories as much as I can. Absolutely. It was, it was really a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. This podcast is produced by Miles Danhausen Jr. and edited by Rachel Lucas. If you want to help us continue to create more great episodes just like this one, visit our website at doorcountypulse.com. Thank you.